What connections can we find between our nation's history and our faith? There are many, and they are important to know. Find out on today's episode of A View from the Wall. Join I Am A Watchman Ministries Managing Editor Joe Kerr with co-host Dylan Burroughs, bringing you a fascinating discussion regarding the importance of Bible prophecy and Christian living today as it relates to our responsibility as believers to be watchmen. This is A View From The Wall. Welcome to A View From The Wall. I'm Dylan Burroughs here today with co-host Joseph Kerr, and we're honored to join you today. It's no secret that our nation's founding values and early history have come under attack. As believers, we want to know the truth about our nation's early history and how it relates to our faith in God. And there is perhaps no better person to address these issues than today's guest, David Barton. David Barton is the founder of Wall Builders, a national pro-family organization that presents America's forgotten history and heroes, along with an emphasis on our moral, religious, and constitutional heritage. He also hosts Wall Builders Live, a daily radio show featured nationwide. David is the author of numerous best-selling books and is a sought-after speaker, bringing the truth of America's history to churches and other groups nationwide. He joins us today from Texas. David, welcome to A View from the Wall. Hey, guys. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, it's our honor to have you with us. And for some people, they may not be familiar with you. So let's just start off at the basic level of what Wall Builders is about, your ministry. Talk a little bit about the importance of the organization that you lead. Yeah, Wall Builders is the name we take from the Bible book of Nehemiah, and we like to model there of uh, people getting involved to rebuild things that have been torn down around them. So the concept of local involvement, of involvement in your own community, I think that's a great model. And, and so that's really what we try to do is get people actively engaged in all aspects of their community. And we do that a lot through what we would call historical reclamation. We own about 160,000 artifacts and documents from American history, about 120,000 from before 1812. So with that, we go all the way back to the Pilgrims and actually a lot earlier, back to Columbus and back to early explorers. But we have originals from then up, up through the present. And we use that really to show people what America was because so much of what we get in school today is a really biased view of who we are so that we can be something different in the future. Uh, there's a great quote from George Orwell that talks about those who control the present control the past, and those who control the past control the future. And so what we teach in education today with things like the 1619 Project or critical race theory or whatever, that is trying to reshape our past, but the way we see our past will affect who we're going to become in the future. And I'll say from up front, yes, America's got plenty of blemishes. And, you know, we can talk about the 1619 Project, what they got right, what they got wrong. As long as you got humans involved, you're going to have lots of failures, lots of problems. But the problem is that today, instead of teaching the good, the bad, and the ugly, we're teaching the bad and the ugly and not covering the good. And you have to cover that as well. And so that's what we see in the Bible, the story of David. What a great guy. God made a covenant with him, man after God's own heart, had a tender heart for worship. But he also was a lousy father. He also committed adultery and murdered a man. So the way we would do it today, we would talk about David only as a murderer or adulterer who was a lousy parent and do nothing else about him. And so nobody that ever heard about David would ever want to read the Bible or any of the Psalms that he wrote or anything else. You have to do what the Bible does and cover the good, the bad, and the ugly. And that's what we're really missing today. And that's what Walbowers really focuses on trying to get back to a, a truthful portrayal of who we are as a people and what we can do as a result. 
David, I love that you are active in the church and in the Christian community, and you do an annual pastor's briefing where you bring in members of Congress. I was privileged to be a part of that this year and really enjoyed it. And it was a time in our past when it was not that uncommon for a Christian to be outspoken in public office. It's not so much that way anymore. Talk about that a little bit, why that's the case, and and, and how does someone serve as a Christian in public office? Yeah, it's very interesting you ask that question because we love going through the Capitol. Now, Ms. Pelosi has it shut down right now. It's just not open to the public anymore. Uh, but we, twice a year, would take uh, pastor's groups to the Capitol, a congressional pastor's briefing. And as you go through the Capitol and you see the statues that are there, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King or George Washington or et cetera, so you got about 120 statues there. And it's interesting that of, of all of these most significant people in American history, you have up to about 25% of them that are ministers and Christian leaders. And these are founders of states. These are founders of governments. These are, are key influencers behind key documents we have. And actually, it's kind of interesting that even when you look back to the American founding and you look at the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, et cetera, um, John Adams is certainly a key part of that. There's no question about that. But there's an interesting thing that happened in 1816 where a young man named Hezekiah Niles contacted old man Adams 40 years after the revolution. And this young man, kind of a millennial of that generation, he said, hey, I'm writing a a book about the history of the United States. I wasn't there for the revolution. You were there. And so I'd like to interview you. So we asked him some questions in in this letter to him. And he said, who who do you think is responsible for for helping America become what it is, because, you know, our generation, we really like it. You guys sacrificed a lot. So who, who would you list? And it's interesting. He didn't go through and start listing all the political people would, would today. He started listing pastors. He said, well, if you want to know why we're an independent nation, why we are who we are, you have to go to the Reverend Dr. Samuel Cooper, the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Mayhew, the Reverend Charles Johnson. He started going through these preachers that we don't even know who they are today. And as you go back and read even the sermons of that day, you'll find that it was really the thinking of Christian leaders that shaped who we were, and that's what even folks like John Adams noted. So that's another element that we're not even aware of today is the role the pastors played in shaping what America has become. Well, that's so well said, and we have about a minute before our break. But before we do, at your briefing, you talked about the fact that there is a tangible feeling of spiritual darkness in Washington, D.C., and that our leaders are literally fighting a spiritual battle. Talk a little bit about that and what that means. Yeah, we don't just war against flesh and blood or political parties or anything else. It's a spiritual battle. In the last four weeks, we've been probably one of the groups most actively involved in getting people out of Afghanistan. And despite the fact that we have Congress behind us and even even the Biden administration has been helping us, the State Department has been the biggest obstacle to, to saving people out of Afghanistan, more so than the Taliban. The Taliban's even cooperating, letting us get people out. And the State Department is stopping flight after flight after flight. And so you say, this is not political. Man, this doesn't even make sense. Why would you keep Americans from getting out of Afghanistan? And that's the kind of spiritual wickedness that, that you find in D.C. that's entrenched in so many of the agencies there, so many of the, the cabinet-level departments. It's just it's pure wickedness, and it frustrates people who are in office who, who want to do things that, that are good to find that they can't even fire the bad guys in D.C. because of the Civil Service Act. You can't even get rid of these bad guys out of the State Department. So... It's very frustrating for good guys to be in D.C. and, and see the, the, the literal depth of spiritual darkness that, that exists in that city, unfortunately. Well, this is such important information. We have to take a quick break. Stay with us here for more on A View from the Wall.
The I Am A Watchman ministry is supported by people just like you so that we can continue in our call to encourage, disciple, educate, and bring people from all tribes and tongues into a right relationship with Jesus. The I Am A Watchman ministry desires to reach the lost, encourage and equip believers, and prepare for the return of the Lord. There's a great need to share truth and disciple believers. Most in the Western world are not strong in their faith. Billions in Africa and India and in Arab and Asian regions are lost or persecuted for their faith. We want to reach them and equip them. Our vision is to facilitate the multiplication of godly leaders, watchmen around the world. Free I Am A Watchman resources have been accessed by individuals in more than 160 countries, but there's so much more to do. Please consider becoming a prayer and financial partner in this good work. Visit IamAWatchman.com to find out how. Welcome back to A View from the Wall. As Joseph and I talk with David Barton, we want to look at some of the key areas of focus that will help you in your spiritual growth as well. For example, the Supreme Court has not met in some time, but they just began their session this week as we recorded, and they have several important cases pending, but perhaps the most important from the pro-life perspective is the Mississippi abortion case that may challenge Roe versus Wade. I want us to talk a little bit about that, if you would, Dave, and what should we expect when this case is presented before the Supreme Court? Well, actually, it's, it's very interesting. That's a case in which we're actually involved right now. We have a network of about a thousand legislators across the nation in all 50 states. I would call it Wall Builders Pro Family Network. So these are guys that are faith guys in office. Uh, they are very concerned about moral and religious liberty issues, et cetera, one of which is the life issue. And so in that case, about 408 of these guys signed on to a brief at the Supreme Court arguing that, hey, court, this is not an issue that's a federal issue. Under the Constitution, this is an issue that belongs to the states. You had to strike down the state laws to implement Roe v. Wade. You had to strike down the Texas law. This doesn't belong to you guys. Give it back to the states where it belongs. Now, the problem is here we are giving it back to the states to some you know, 50 years later, and now you have a lot of pro-abortion states that are very active. Just a few days ago, uh, the U.S. House uh, passed the, the most sweeping pro-abortion bill ever passed in the United States, and it would stop all states from being able to do anything to limit abortion. So it's a sweeping federal law. We think it'll get stopped in the Senate. Uh, Joe Manchin has, has made it pretty clear he's not going to move on that. So if we can get a stop in the Senate, then we'll still be able to preserve the, the right of, I think, 28 states now that if we got Roe v. Wade done, these states would become pro-life. They passed what are called trigger laws. So as soon as the Supreme Court strikes down Roe v. Wade, this trigger law triggers a law that says we're, we're a pro-life state. Now, you've also had four or five states that have also done that on the pro-abortion side, that if Roe v. Wade gets struck down, uh, we have a constitutional amendment that says you can never stop abortions in New York or Delaware, wherever it is. So both sides are lining up because they think the court will significantly undercut the Roe v. Wade decision. We've seen that for a bit. Uh, the fact that the court actually reached out and took this case from Mississippi is a pretty good indication that they're going to do that. It only takes four of the nine justices of the court to accept a case, which means you could still lose it. So what's happened is started under Scalia. Scalia got to the point where he said, look, I'm not going to take a case at the court unless five of us are willing to, to change it. Because if you get to the court, let's say this, this Mississippi case got to the court because four people voted for it, and then five people said, no, you, you can't strike down abortion. Well, now you've reinvigorated the pro-abortion side to say you can't end this. And so under Scalia, he, he got the other justices kind of 
to stop taking it unless we can win it because now you create a bad precedent that the new precedent is likely to last for decades more. So we are very optimistic that the court is, is willing to change the, the Roe v. Wade decision. Now, the question is how much will they go because a lot of folks who deal with court on a regular basis, and I've been involved in 13 cases in the Supreme Court, they really see this as, as being key with someone like Justice Roberts that he wants to end Roe v. Wade, but he doesn't want to do it in one case. He wants to do it in two or three cases. So the belief is that what he'll probably do is he would say, well, Mississippi says let's not have abortions after 15 weeks, and that's the right of the state to decide that. So we're going to hold those as Mississippi law. Well, that doesn't overturn Roe v. Wade, but it does give more power back to the states. And then the belief is that there would be another case they would pick up where they said, well, you know, we gave power back to the states in that Mississippi case. Let's just get the feds completely out of it. Let's, let's just get out of, out of Roe v. Wade. And so they think that it, it may be another case after this before we ultimately end Roe v. Wade. But I think it's very possible they could end Roe v. Wade in this decision as well. So we'll see. Um, but we, we do think this is going to be a very favorable, very positive step in the right direction in at least undercutting Roe v. Wade, if not ending Roe v. Wade. And by the way, I, I say that, and people need to understand that if, if the court overturns Roe v. Wade, that does not end abortion. It simply means the feds don't have any abortion and it goes back to the states. And so overturning Roe v. Wade does not mean we're a pro-life nation, suddenly. It just means every state will have to battle it out on its own grounds. You wrote a book on the judicial system sometime back called Original Intent. A lot of the original justices were believers as well, cited Bible verses for some of their decisions. But again, that's changed over the years. Uh, talk about some of our founding um, visionaries and founding justices, early justices, and how the judicial branch was established. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that here in Texas, the case that is now uh, worked its way through the district court and the Fifth Circuit Court it involves uh, Judge Wayne Mack down in Montgomery County, Texas who still has prayer in his courtroom. Of course, that puts the secular guys off, and you can't have prayer, and that's unconstitutional, whatever. And so we were asked to be part of that case, and so we just provided just a stack of documents now that at the original U.S. Supreme Court, uh, the original Justice of the Supreme Court, John Jay and, and Blair and Cushing and Wilson, these guys, they opened Supreme Court sessions by having a minister come in and pray at the Supreme Court. I also have a collection uh, of things, and this goes back to early Supreme Court justices as well, like to take Justice, Justice Joseph Story, who probably wrote the most authoritative commentary on the Constitution in 1833. He's back there. His father was in the Boston Tea Party, and he grew up with the Patriots. And it's interesting that in a case that came before him where the death penalty was, was delivered by the jury, the jury looked at the defendant and said, hey, you're guilty, and the sentence is death. Justice Story in the courtroom gave a salvation message in all the call. Told this guy, hey, you're about to be God. You're about to be put to death. And before you meet God, you better repent of this sin, and you better get right with God. And I have, I don't know how many hundreds of cases, death penalty cases, where the judges would stop the proceedings and give a gospel message to the person just convicted of, of and given the death penalty. And that was federal judges and state judges and local judges. And, you know, this is something that went up in the last 20 or 30 years ago. And somehow today we think it's never happened because it hadn't happened in the last 20 or 30 years. Oh, my gosh, it started out happening. And that's what the original justices, the guys who signed the Constitution and ratified it in their own original court. And that was their practice, highly religious, highly biblical. Well, it's amazing how quickly we forget about that historical tradition that we have of embracing the practices of Scripture, of preaching the gospel, even talking about it in the courtroom. 
There's so much more we want to address, but we have to take a quick break and we'll be back with more here on A View From The Wall. Stick with us. The Bible predicts the rapture of the church is coming. Are you ready? Soon many will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Only they will escape the dark days that are coming. A time of tribulation that will usher in the Antichrist and great destruction upon the entire earth. There's only one escape, one way, one light, one truth. His name is Jesus. He came and died so that we may live forever with Him. But to receive this new life, there are three things we must do. The ABCs of salvation. A. Admit you're a sinner and that you need a Savior. Ask for forgiveness and receive His grace. B. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He came, lived, died, rose again, and will come again. Believe that He is Lord and God. C. Commit to walk His path, the path He wants you to walk, and walk it out by faith. Then you'll be ready for the return of the Lord. To learn more about the rapture and how to know for sure, visit amiraptureready.org. Welcome back to A View From The Wall. In our final segment today with David Barton, we want to share some of the implications and applications for our lives today as we talk about how history in our nation relates to our faith. There will always be some who argue that the political arena is no place for the church and pastors should just stick to the Bible and the gospel. And talk to our pastors for a moment, if you would, David. What role does the church and what role do church leaders have in this secular age that we live in today? Well, I think the church leader is just like a a Christian in church, not just a pastor, but a Christian. We all have a duty and responsibility to obey the scriptures. And so that's, that's the least that we can do is obey what God says in his word. One of the things he says in his word is, is what we call the Great Commission, where Jesus said, go and make disciples of all men, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. In the 1960s, the church turned that into a conversion mandate. we got to get everybody converted. That's not what it was. It was a discipleship mandate. And so if I would just take that quickly and say, okay, let's, let's examine what Jesus said when he said, teach them everything I've taught you. I go, okay, let's go back to the Gospels, and, and let's notice that in... Um, in Matthew 19, verses 1 to 15, Jesus took the disciples aside and gave them a long teaching on no-fault divorce, how wrong it was, and why it was wrong, and what, what the family was supposed to look like. Now, I can safely tell you I've never in my life heard a teaching on no-fault divorce. Now, I'm, I'm an ordained minister and served in many church staff in many states, and I've never heard a teaching on that. I can also take you to Matthew 20, where that Jesus starts talking about the minimum wage and about the inviability of employer-employee contracts. And the rights that an employer has will make it in a, a contract with an employee and the rights of the employer and of the employee himself. I've never heard a sermon on that either. I can also take you to John 8, where the Jesus got into process within the courtroom. And did you have a right to confront your accuser? And by the way, the interesting thing to note is that the, if you practice federal law and, and federal courts, there is a series of books called Federal Practice and Procedure. And it tells you, okay, if you're going to be in the federal courts, this is the way they operate. This is how they want you to fill out the forms or do the papers or whatever. And so it's dozens of volumes. And if you go to the volume that, that deals with due process rights, volume, um, volume 30, it's interesting. They have nearly 20 pages dedicated 
in federal practice and procedure to showing you how the teachings of Jesus and teachings of the Bible is what shaped the Fourth to the Eighth Amendments of the U.S. Constitution. And they point to specifically John 8 and the, the teaching that Jesus did for his disciples in John 8 and how that due process clauses we have came out of that. I've never heard a church, I've never heard a sermon on that. And I can keep going. These are all teachings that Jesus gave his disciples and he told them, you guys go teach others everything I've taught you. So I would say that in general, but the Christian community itself has lost sight of the Great Commission and as a result have lost sight of how practical the Bible is. If I took you back to the, the pilgrims, I mean, the, the fact that we have private property ownership in America at a time when kings owned everything in the rest of the world came specifically out of the Bible verses. The fact that the American system created the free market economic system before anybody else in the world came specifically, historically, from five Bible verses. Pilgrims are the ones who started this. But you, you find first, Second Thessalonians 3.10 and First Timothy 5.8 and Matthew 20 and Luke 19 and Matthew 25 and if you study history, it's those five verses that built the free market system, which is the most prosperous system in the world. So, you know, I just keep going through all these things that we take for granted today, not understanding where they came from. And that really is because we don't know the Bible as teachings. Uh, we find now today that only 28% of, of active pastors, 384,000 pastors and, and senior pastors and churches in America, only 28% agree with Bible teaching. There's only 107,000 churches that on polling, say they agree with what the Bible teaches, and out of that, 90% of those pastors refuse to talk about something if it's in the news, believing that it's political to do that. Jesus talks about what was in the news on a regular basis, and I think we have to get back to that concept of discipleship and teaching others everything he taught us in the Bible, which is more than just salvation, by the way, although that is key. I'm not underplaying that, but you don't stop there. That's just a starting point. That's not an ending point, and the church has really kind of made that the objective rather than the beginning point. David, we like to do some application and make it just as practical as we can. So there are a couple of areas here that I want you to hit in the few minutes we've got left. Um, we talk about education on this program. You talk about education a lot and documented too. So we have Christians who listen to this program who are part of the educational system, and they're often the only source of light and truth on their campus, but it's difficult for them to keep up with all of the equity and all the things that they're required to do and still back their Christian beliefs. Talk to our educators and some of the others who are listening to this program. How do they live out their Christian life in a very secular society? Well, the good news is uh, Christian educators in public arena actually have more rights than they've had in 60 years. We're winning more cases at the courts on all levels, and teachers are winning more cases than we have in a long time. Just a quick review. Uh, the first time that the, the courts ever said you, you have to have a completely secular education system is 1962-63. Three court decisions in less than 12 months. Prior to that, every public school in America still had the Bible. You still prayed, start the day. The concept of secular education is a brand new concept. And that's interesting. When you look at the chief justice of the court in that period, it was Earl Warren. And the Supreme Court itself documents that only 43% of First Amendment cases under Earl Warren actually upheld the First Amendment. So we lost a lot of religious liberty there. Then came Warren Burger, the next chief justice. And in his tenure, 51% of religious liberty cases at the court were won. When you jump to William Rehnquist, 58% of the cases in the Supreme Court were won. When you jump to the current Chief Justice, John Roberts, right now, we are winning 88% of religious liberty cases that come to the Supreme Court. We're actually starting to get religious liberties back we have not had in 60 years. And the fact that even last year, the Supreme Court, the Espinoza decision said, hey, 
public states, you cannot mandate that, that, that public dollars only go to secular education. Public dollars can go elsewhere as well. So the courts really are in high, in the hands of teachers. And what you'll find is most school attorneys are unaware of this and they keep telling teachers, you can't do this. You can't talk about this. My gosh, we have over a hundred court decisions on the Good News Club. If teachers themselves can lead evangelism clubs on campuses, public school campuses. So the first thing teachers need to do is get connected with legal groups like the Pacific Justice Institute or First Liberty or Liberty Council and find out what your rights are. You've got a ton more rights than you think. And so don't let somebody talk you into not not saying what's right simply because you're at a public school. The second thing is we have a number of laws passed called American Heritage Education Act that said you cannot censor American history simply because it has religious content. But you you are free to teach all the religious roots of America, the, the Christian aspects of it, the biblical aspects, how the Bible shapes the process clauses, whatever it is. That's history. And the law states clearly you cannot cut out uh, religious aspects of history just because they're religious. So that's what I'm encouraged teachers to do is find the backbone, find your voice, and be bold and courageous and stand up. Doesn't mean they won't yell at you and attack you and, and call you names, but it does mean you have a legal right to do this stuff. And we need people with courage standing up and getting this back out. Otherwise, these kids will never know what, what truth actually looks like if they only hear the government side of the stuff. Well, that is a great perspective to have courage on this issue and some of the issues that we face as well in our nation. I know many people will want to get more information about your resources, find out how to listen to some of your videos. Where can people go to get more information about your ministry? If they go to wallbuilders.com, they will find thousands of articles there that deal with public affairs and public events and what the law is. They'll find thousands of original documents displayed there. They'll find a lot of books that are most recent, The American Story, which really does cover uh, the influence of the Bible and shaping America and all of our institutions. So there's a lot there they'll find that'll be very useful. We've also got YouTube channels with a lot of what we call one room schoolhouse, little three to five minute clips on historical incidents or documents or things that, that people have fun watching and learning about. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. And for those listening, we want to thank you as well. We appreciate your prayers and support and encourage you to join us next time here on A View from the Wall. A View from the Wall, in association with I Am a Watchman Ministries, exists to equip a worldwide audience with biblical truth, sharing it with others, and being prepared for Christ's imminent return. The team seeks to encourage, inspire, and equip watchmen for such a time as this. For information about the ministry and upcoming events, visit IamAWatchman.com. A View from the Wall is made possible by the team of dedicated pastors, editors, and the many contributors of I Am A Watchman Ministries. To support our efforts, give online at IamAWatchman.com and click on the Donate button. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time on A View from the Wall.